Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're joined by Helen Lewis, author of Difficult Women, The History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And in conversation with Roz Irwin, they discuss the complicated, imperfect, and often contradictory fight for equal rights. It's a really fascinating conversation with some reflections on the current COVID-19 pandemic. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Helen's book in the podcast description. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Rosamond Irwin. And I'm delighted today to welcome our guest, who will be familiar to so many, which is Helen Lewis, a staff writer on The Atlantic and formerly the associate editor of The New Statesman. Her first book is Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, which has just been released in paperback. Welcome today, Helen. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So if we start with the title, the book is called Difficult Women. And you say really right at the beginning that you're not talking about rudeness or, or being a diva. What do you mean when you say difficult then? Yeah, sometimes I am talking about rudeness or being a diva, as I think you'll probably find out if you read on. Um, some of these women were very hard to work with indeed. You know, they were monomaniacal, they were tyrannical, they, you know, they were obsessive, they alienated everyone around them. So that is kind of part of the idea of difficulty. It doesn't have to be, but in the case of some of them, it definitely was. But the suffragette-suffragist divide is a really interesting one because the suffragettes are obviously difficult women. I say in the book, you know, they were pretty close to terrorists, actually. You know, they were they were planning an extensive bombing campaign which got disrupted by the outbreak of the First World War. But the suffragists, the non-violent, you know, civil rights marchers, they were difficult women too. You know, Millicent Garrett Fawcett was plugging away at women's rights for nigh on 60 years. You know, she died at the age of 80. And that was it. She had spent her whole life campaigning for it. So that's another kind of difficulty too, just being kind of remorseless and not taking no for an answer, you know, being awkward and un- unreasonable. That's what you will kind of get called. And then the final sort of sense of it is that idea about women as hard to understand, not us not wanting to put women at the front of the queue. And I think that's a big thing still in current left-wing politics which likes to see itself as being very open 
to you know hearing from marginalized people kind of nonetheless have a sort of feeling that they wish women would sort of shut up a bit about how because they're boring oppressions that are only solved with a lot of money being applied to them like elderly care like child care you know that these aren't these aren't kind of glamorous and flashy and no one feels good about themselves campaigning for them they're sort of drudgery and i think that's a that's a big part of the story of difficulty too you do say that women are called difficult when they stand up for themselves. And just this morning, Jordan Peterson, someone who uh, likes to see himself as a sort of paragon of traditional masculinity, has tweeted, why do you hate me so much, Helen Lewis, in response to your review of his book? So do you see yourself as a difficult woman or are you just standing up for yourself? I don't mind being a difficult. I'm fine with being um, a difficult woman because I think it means, you know, there's that quote in the book about you know, people call me a feminist when I do anything that would distinguish me from being a doormat or a prostitute, actually. That's the end of that, the Rebecca West's saying. But it is it is kind of that the same thing about being called a difficult woman. And actually, the the funny thing about that is, is that I, if you click through to read the review, it is, I think, a lot more sympathetic to Jordan Peterson than people would expect. That's the thing I find quite odd about it. And actually a reflection of what I wrote about in the book, which is the intense polarisation of particularly social media, right? That unless something is a 100% rave, then it's an attack. And actually, I find it much more interesting, and this is another type of difficulty, to work in the grey areas, to work in the difficult spaces, to write about the fact that Mary Stopes was both an incredible pioneer of contraception and a eugenicist. And eugenics was a big strain in early 20th century intellectual life. It was a very respectable bigotry to hold. And, you know, that's what really fascinates me. I don't want to have heroes and villains, although I know that's what happens when you tell stories. It casts people in those roles. I want to explore, you know, to me, Jordan Peterson isn't a hero or a villain. He's a complicated, flawed human being who, who you know, who acts sometimes in irrational ways in the way that we all do. And, and I think his story and his tragedy is what polarisation in social media has done to our kind of intellectual climate, which has, you know, made someone see the world in such unbelievably binary terms that people either love them or hate them. And I don't love or hate him. I just find him interesting. And I think the same is true of a lot of the women in my book. You know, I respect some of the things they do. I respect Emmeline Pankhurst. Would I have wanted to work under Emmeline Pankhurst? No, she sounds like a nightmare. But the suffragettes undoubtedly achieved something extraordinary. And had they had a, you know, meek, reasonable person in charge of them, they probably wouldn't have done. We have to kind of, we have to deal with that and we have to confront that strain in our history. One of the threads that runs through the book is you sort of say that the well, right at the beginning, you say role models, the way that they can be used in feminism is basically diluting a radical pa- uh, radical political movement into feel-good inspiration porn, which is an amazing quote. And then sort of later on, you sort of say about this way that women have to be perfect. And, you know, one of the major things in, in feminism that I have really felt, and you've obviously been victim of yourself, is that there's a willingness to knock down anyone who's less than perfect. So you hold these people up and then you you tear them down. Um, do you think that's something that is particular to our time, an era of social media, or was it a bit ever thus? I'm sure it was ever thus. And actually, you know, ad hominem, or in this case, ad feminem attacks, are just a lazy way of not actually engaging with some what someone's saying. And, and you know, it's all the species of the kind of what I think of as the dunk. You know, we live in the era of the dunk, you know, just the, the way that you subtly twist someone's words to be the perfect foil for you to make the kind of great joke and make yourself look amazing. And it doesn't matter if you haven't really faithfully represented them, because what you're actually doing there is going, I've got a thought, it's about me, here's what I think. So yeah, I, I don't think that is a particularly 
unique to to now but equally well I do think that the fact that there's just such a cacophony like it's very hard I don't know about you but when I'm writing pieces and I want to write about sort of public opinion trying to work out what public opinion is is very hard because you know you are so um attuned to the the sources that you read and the social media feeds that you follow that trying to get any idea of what the median British person never mind the median world person thinks about everything is incredibly difficult it's one of the reasons I'm such a big fan of the BBC for all its flaws is it does kind of create at least some level of shared reality for all of us but 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 outside of that it's incredibly easy to be led astray by by sort of partisan actors and the shoutiest lot of people into thinking that everyone hates someone or everyone loves someone or you're very alone in what you think. And that's made the conversation quite difficult. I think that's absolutely right. Um, one of the other things I found really interesting is you express rather bravely, I thought, a bit of disappointment with fourth wave feminism. And this is something that I've thought about a lot, the idea that there are actually very few concrete victories. And though it's deeply unfashionable to say it, second wave feminism achieved an awful lot. And what are our victories from the sort of 2010s feminism? It's it's hard to name. I mean, there are some and, you know, discussions of intersectionality, uh, issues like FGM being much more given much more attention, elements like that. But actually, what what are those those victories really? Yeah, I don't um, think in those. 50 years' time anyone's going to look back and say, the thing is, if you think about the history of feminism, in 2019, Helen Lewis did a phenomenal tweet. It's just <laughs> like, that's just not how, that's just not how it works. And you're right, the 1970s, going through from equal pay to sex discrimination to the foundation of the refuge movement in 1971, you know, to ending some extraordinary abuses, you know, there were virginity inspections for Asian women coming over to marry British people in the 1970s. There are all these kind of, you know, incredible grassroots feminist activism going on. And what's happened, I think, is that the feminist movement has become more corporatized, more academic, maybe. It's it's moved into... In my worst days, and we're talking around International Women's Day, you know, I think that it's been bought in as a kind of laundering exercise by corporations, right? And and, and who are the speakers you get to speak on corporate International Women's Day events? It's people who have got basically incredibly unthreatening things to say about how we should all believe in ourselves a bit more, reach a little higher, dig a little deeper. You know, it's not, by the way, we should put a penny on income tax in order to pay for elderly care, right? It's it's not, you know, it's not corporations need to, you know, by law fund 12 months of maternity leave on full pay you know it's not kind of scorchingly radical things that that would actually cost an enormous amount of money so I do think that that's the the kind of corporatization of feminism has definitely taken some of the radicalism out of it and I do get kind of annoyed when young feminists sort of seem to think that feminism is something that should be done for you well no you know the refuge movement which is now under attack from all sides right both from people in and on, on the sort of austerity side of the argument and from younger feminists who think that catering for women is not is a bit passe you know that was built by people's own hands you know Erin Pitts who I write about in the book she basically squatted you know a house in southwest London and and they were crammed all in in defiance of any kind of health and safety law that's that's not what the women's sector looks like now the women's sector now looks like you know local councils contracting out domestic violence refugees which has enormous advantages you know and it should be funded by the public purse but at the same time it has become a kind of um a feeling that someone else exists to solve feminist problems which is which and i do therefore get a bit misty-eyed about the diy feminism of the 70s 
But we have had some amazing victories. You know, I do think the first FGM prosecution has been really good, adding coercive control to the legislation. There's now talk about adding non-fatal strangulation as a specific offence, which is really important because of all the red flags in domestic violence cases for them to progress on to a woman being murdered. Strangulation is, is the one that you would look at and say, if he's strangling her, that is that is a relationship that is going to end in her death. So, you know, there have been some some legal challenges. But some of that is coming from older feminists, so the wonderful Harriet Wistrich, right? The people who do kind of DIY feminism still, right? They're not on Twitter. They're out there fighting for stuff in a way that perhaps, as you say, maybe people are doing a little bit less, some of the younger feminists perhaps. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, in a way, this is not a great conversation for you and I to have because we're we're what what they would then call media feminists, right? They would say that actually, come on, is really writing a few stirring columns that much of a contribution? My rejoinder to that is I did spend a couple of years as the chair of a small women's charity and that taught me a lot about uh, how hard that is, particularly for specialist services, because they've been nudged out by these big warehouse providers, by essentially great big, the kind of circos and G4Ss, you know, so you know, in search of, of, of cost savings. It's it's a really quite a you know bleak picture out there for, for women's domestic violence stuff. But I yeah, I, I agree with you and I and I do think I hope younger feminists recapture some of that DIY do it yourself spirit. You mentioned Pitsy and she's one of the most fascinating characters in your book because you actually say you you uh, sort of see her as a warning about feminism, civil war. Um, explain a bit about her and and why she is not really what you expect her to be. She was one of the stories that most fascinated me going into this because I thought, how do you go from this incredible pinnacle of feminist achievement, founding the first women's refuge in Chiswick in 1971, you know, doing so much the first time that domestic violence as a phrase gets used in the commons is only a couple of years later by Jack Ashley. Before that, it was sort of wife beating. You know, it, she, the work that she did created both a whole new class of, of help for women in dire situations and a whole new class of, of kind of offence, of a way of understanding that this wasn't some normal part of marriage that you had an argument and it got a bit rough. No, no, no. This is, you know, if this happened in the street and someone punched someone, you take it very seriously. So why don't you take it seriously in the home? So there we get this incredible feminist achievement. Cut forward to, you know, the late 1990s and she's writing pieces for the Daily Mail about how feminism has destroyed the nuclear family. It's set men and women at odds with each other. She's editor at large of A Voice for Men, which is an explicitly anti-feminist website. And I thought, that's 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 a 180. Like, you know, that's like properly like, you know, I've gone from being a kind of, you know, it's like Richard Dawkins announces that he's running for Pope. You know, it's it's it's, it's kind of hard to understand. And then you probe down into it and it's not so hard to understand. You know, she felt from the start that the women's movement was portraying women as innocent victims when actually there were dynamics of violence within couples. And some of that, I think, has got some truth to it. It's very hard to address domestic violence in in, in, in on either partner in isolation. Um, you know, you, you do need to somehow look at dysfunctional relationships which is not to excuse the fact that by far more men kill women by by magnitudes greater than the other way around. But also so many of our interventions are only focused on saving people in imminent danger of death. We don't actually have a lot of solutions for people who are suffering moderate level, constant domestic violence over several years. It's only when it escalates to being life threatening that then the state steps in and gets involved. So she had some interesting and hard things to say about that. Combine that then with her feeling that the 70s feminist movement was full of blue-haired people called Gladiator and Patchouli. 
and that they weren't like her. And you see the exact outlines of the kind of conflict that's happening now, right, about the kind of the woke and and students and campus politics and over prissy policing of language and all that kind of stuff that is, you know, used as a way to attack feminism. And 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 I'm sure you will know this as well, that you I don't I have always felt the pressure to distance myself from that. You have to, whatever it is, there's a lot of time in feminism because it's got no boundaries spent going, I'm not one of those feminists. And sort of everybody does it, whatever they're part of feminism. And so it became less and less a mystery why she ended up doing what looked on the surface like a 180 and why it began to seem more inevitable. And I have to say, you know, having had one or two feminist beatings myself on the internet, I can see the temptation to go stuff you <laughs> like get a, like get on with it without me you know it's a it's a it's not a political party it's not it's a very large and baggy ideology and it's a very large and baggy movement and that that in itself is quite a difficult thing to negotiate yeah absolutely the sort of personality clashes that come about you say in the book that those sort of personality clashes are reminiscent of your own time in the feminist trenches. Do you think there's a particular reason that feminism is prone to these sort of fallouts and vicious arguments and sort of now what would be termed cancelling of people? Or is, would that be the case with any movement that's inevitably broad because it's reflecting, you know, a huge range of views united in, in a belief in female equality? I think that if you look at, say, the Labour Party over the last five years, you'd be hard pressed to say that, you know, organisations with plenty of men at the top are harmonious places where people work through their problems and personality clashes in a respectful manner. I think that's something that any kind of organisation, you know, political parties are prone to them for the same, you know, these clashes for the same reason that they attract people with strong personalities who want to be in charge. Feminism, I think, has got a particular problem because women are expected to respond well to criticism. And by respond well, I mean particularly they're expected to bow to it, to internalise it, to apologise, right? I think there's something that I have definitely seen is when a prominent feminist gets criticised, there is an expectation that she will take that on board and take it seriously and, 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 and make people feel okay about that. And I just don't see male public intellectuals suffering under that expectation, right? No one who has a pop at say Jordan Peterson is expecting him to go, oh, I'm so sorry you were offended. No, actually, I really should. No, oh, okay, well, let me just explain what I was trying to say there, right? Whereas I think we do when people have in the past had, you know, a go at sort of Catelyn Moran or whoever it might be. So I think that that tendency to kind of self-criticism is there and also the tendency to self-flagellation, which it tips over into. And that's a particular feature of the feminist movement, I think. Well, you talk about in the last chapter, the, uh, the right to be difficult, and we do have that expectation on women, which is really a patriarchal expectation to be nice, to be selfless, all of those things. And is is that really, is it women sometimes expecting that of other women? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's one of the things people are always really surprised when I say that I'm not, this is not a story about, ooh, boo, beastly men being, you know, awful to, to lovely, nice individual women. Actually, it's a story about a structure that everybody ends up playing their part in. And you'd see that in the kind of, the kind of, the people who try and opt out of it and say, well, I'm a, I'm a woman, but not like a bad, whiny one, which I talk about, you know, Elizabeth the First syndrome, you know, I might have the heart and stomach of a, you know, was it the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. And that is still such a feature um, you know, it's it's there in kind of Margaret Thatcher saying in the run up to the 79 election, you know, I don't think I don't want to be judged as a woman or a man. I just want to be judged as a person. There are people who definitely try and sort of get, 
exceptionalize themselves out of it. But yeah, it's it's it, it's it's something that we all play into. You know, I I'm very aware of the fact that there are archetypes that I play into, you know, that, that p- people have certain expectations about me when they see me on television and I can either kind of subvert them or play into them. And that's another thing that's a big running theme of the book, right, is that Jaya Ben Desai, for example, the leader of the strikers in saris, was very aware that four foot eleven and of Indian descent, you know, she didn't look like what the trade union movement expected. And, you know, the phrase you could use about that, she kind of hammed it up. She leaned into it. She wanted to be bright and colourful when all the policemen were in boring navy blue and, you know, everyone else was a white man with jowls sort of smoking a pipe because she knew it made her incredibly memorable. It made her iconic. And in the suffragettes also knew that as well. They knew that Christabel Pankhurst was not to put too fine a point on it, very attractive. And that all of the negative publicity was about what kind of group of hatchet-faced old virgins they were. So they kind of put her out front and centre to say... You know, we're not actually. We could have husbands if we wanted. We just choose not to. One of the other ways feminist concerns often get sort of dismissed. Um, you've got the great example of Tess Gill and Elvino, and this is a bar that wouldn't allow women. And of course, everyone said, "Well, this is a trivial bar. It wouldn't. Sorry, it wouldn't. It would allow women in. It wouldn't allow them to to order drinks." And they they sort of get dismissed as as trivial, even by some women. Now that actually happens a lot, but that has a broader. Sometimes the small fights have broader sort of, you know, ripple effect. Um, do, do you think that this is something we're still struggling with today to see those broader meanings and, and why they matter so much? Oh, completely. Any Almost any feminist action gets dismissed as not being the thing that you should actually be talking about, that you should be talking about this instead. And the point I make in the book is that the fact that women couldn't get served at the bar, yeah, was thrown out by a lower court as de minimis. You know, this idea wasn't worth bothering with. But at the same time, the lunch counter protests about race-segregated lunch counters were a huge deal in the American civil rights movement. Actually, there was an enormous push there to recognise that, of course, it is absurd and horrifying to say only white people can get served at the bar. It is just as absurd and horrifying to say that only people with one particular set of genitals can get served at the bar. What is your rationale for that? And the temptation is, I think, is something that comes to me first from... Deborah Cameron is like it's not like you're being asked if you want one or the other it's not like you can either have equal pay or being served at the bar you know this just happens to be the the one that you're asking for at the moment and also if it really is that unimportant it doesn't matter well just give me what I want then yeah quite. If, if you really don't care if you really don't care either way and I do care why don't I have my way and that's the bit I write about in the book about the Edinburgh Seven who wanted to be admitted to university, is that first of all, you know, there was a kind of apathy about it. Well, women wanting to go to university, yeah, well, it seems like a reasonable ask, but I don't see why it's our, our priority right now. And that, as they got in and started studying and started actually beating the men, doing better than them in exams, suddenly that apathy washed away and was revealed as what it actually was, which was conservatism. They wanted things to stay the same. You know, they didn't not care about it. They liked the status quo. And as soon as actually there was a challenge to the status quo, that revealed itself. The Elvino example is is great for another reason, which is that you uh, mentioned this first woman of Fleet Street, Jean Rook, and she was so utterly dismissive of of other women, uh, you know, fighting for this. I've always felt a bit depressed that one of the best paid jobs in journalism for women is sort of knocking other women, doing the devil's work. Um, Do you agree with that? And do you think that's true? Has that changed or are we still in the same situation all these years on? 
Oh, it's absolutely true. For all that you might say Glenda's slag in private eye is a very unfair and sexist representation, it also does capture something about there is a kind of, you know, oh, isn't she terrible? Oh, isn't she lovely? Oh, no, actually, isn't she terrible again? But the thing that's difficult about that is that the readers of those columns are also themselves, I would say, majority female. You know, that is women policing each other's behaviour on behalf of other women. You know, I'm not sure there are quite so many men who really care what Meghan Markle's earrings are like, for example. Like, that is a kind of, you know, or or whatever, you know, it, it, or, or whether or not someone's, like, still carrying a little bit of baby weight. You know, I just, actually, I, that's not something that I feel a lot of men on a day-to-day basis are really following someone's weight loss journey after their pregnancy. That's an audience of, of women. So we have to be quite upfront about the value system that that's playing into. But it's also fascinating to me that it means that there's much more attention. Um, you know, if you're presenting your TV series, like whether it be Fleabag or Girls or whatever it might be, or I May Destroy You, as being about women's lives, it automatically becomes sort of more interesting. We're, we, we are much more interested in, in holding up women's lives as kind of emblematic of something and trying to find the hidden meaning in them. I'm thinking about the recent documentary, the New York Times documentary about Britney Spears. You know, she was turned into this virgin icon and then she was turned into this sort of girls gone wild, you know, train wreck. And and everything is just amped up and and we try and read the life to this kind of extraordinary extent for, for women in a way that, you know, I was trying to think about whether or not it was true of sort of, you know, someone at the same male level. Was it true of Leonardo DiCaprio? I don't feel like we kind of said, wow, look at him, he's out in a bar again. We just sort of went, ah, oh, young men, they, you know, they like to have fun. That's it. Mm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing you mention in the book, it's not a particular focus, but right at the start, you talk about Me Too inevitably. And you say that it sort of broke down into discussions of borderline cases. And I, I think that has been one of the problems with it as a movement, that quite quickly it moved on from being, and, and obviously people did brilliant work in this sphere leading to Harvey Weinstein and, and it being exposed after all these years. But there was a problem inherent within it, which is one that it's really difficult as a journalist to write these stories, particularly in our country, uh, due to, you know, uh, our very unfriendly libel laws or unfriendly to, to newspapers anyway, friendly to, to claimants. But I, I wondered if you think Me Too got a bit lost quite quickly. And really, some of it was what might get categorised by some people, and, and, they, and they might get attacked for this, but might be categorised as bad sex rather than something worth you know, that that deserved that much conversation. I definitely felt that about one particular case, which was of a TV star in America. And there was a piece published by a woman who had gone home with him on the premise that she was going to be shagging a TV star. And this would clearly be a story that she would tell all her friends forever. And then he I think was... we're thinking of the same story. So yeah. yes, I agree on this. Yeah. And then, and then he, w- he was, you know, sleazy. 
I would say, but not in a way to me that in her description of it, at least crossed the line into coercive or or force. So it's, you know, it's very different that someone didn't treat you with respect during a sexual encounter, which makes them kind of a prick versus somebody, you know, forced you into something in a way that you, you know, your consent was removed, which is sexual assault and rape. And that was, a, that to me, that case kind of became emblematic of people sort of settling scores and not wanting to reflect on their own behaviour. And that's a very difficult conversation to have because the history of, uh, you know, writing about rape and sexual assault has been so riven by victim blaming, so much about what was she wearing, why was she walking home at night, why was she drunk, why was she this, why was she that, that actually we've now lost any ability to talk about um, the choices that women make in those situations. And I felt like you know what, I don't think it was massively respectful to him to be like setting yourself up to for the, the you know, you weren't planning to go into this guy because you thought you were super in love with him or you were super into him. You were setting this up as a, a future anecdote to be about your great celebrity shag that you could dine out on. So that doesn't particularly, maybe I'm getting old and sentimental about sex, but that doesn't really sit particularly well with me about respecting his innate humanity. So maybe this was just a bad sexual encounter all round. But we kind of lost the space to talk about that because of the idea, because of hovering over it all, being the fact there have been so many women whose offence was nothing more than walking down a street wearing a skirt, who have been therefore, you know, it was now disjudged that it, they weren't really raped. You know, they they could have they could have modified their behaviour, which is you know disgusting um, as an accusation. And one thing Me Too didn't really do is it didn't look at the. St- structural element too much i mean there's some element of it but you rightly point out that chris grayling bringing in upfront fees um to take on employment tribunals which obviously eventually uh, found to be unlawful to force people to do that that actually is more damaging to me too than you know the product probably a huge amount else that has been done yeah yeah upfront fees that yeah as you say were ruled um unlawful by the supreme court and and therefore and then scrapped that was an astonishingly like horrible thing to do to people, particularly in poor industries. I mean, one of the complaints about Me Too was that, you know, oh, look, this is all rich actresses. And, and, and that was interesting in itself is the fact that you can be Gwyneth Paltrow or whoever it might be. And nonetheless, still, you know, with lots of power and lots of privilege and lots of other ways, you still are at the mercy of somebody who is a, a sexual predator. But it it may, you know, the Chris Grayling point is, you know, what do you do if you're an agency cleaner and you get assaulted at work? What do you do if you're, you know, a temp worker in a call centre and you get harassed by a boss out of your job? That was just a, a, a flat inability to ever get any kind of justice for your for yourself. And that was appalling. And anyone who said that they, you know, who wanted to have a go at all these moaning rich actresses should also have addressed themselves to the question that, you know, the people they purported to make those criticisms on behalf of low-income women were being absolutely stiffed by government policy at the time. Um, and obviously that's another thing of, of trying to find a perfect victim. I mean, you know, and obviously victims are not always as perfect as, you, as you've mentioned earlier. You know, there's an expectation that you can find this perfect victim who not only, you know, one, once Gwyneth Paltrow might have been considered, incidentally, uh, the perfect person to raise complaints against someone, but now she's too privileged. So it's a new thing to stop a woman who's got a voice saying anything. I think that's why Harvey Weinstein is a fascinating case study because he was so unbelievably monstrous. You know, this was a campaign of sexual assault and harassment that went on for decades against, but it turned it sort of felt like almost anyone you'd ever heard of. Uh, you know, it and yet still, and which I think was ultimately a good thing, he was not convicted on all of the charges that even made it to trial, which to me is good because what that says is 
that the jury looked at it and said, we're only going to convict you of what there is evidence in this court in front of us, not of, you know, all the stuff that we've read in the papers, which is how it should work. But yeah, I agree with you entirely. The problem with me too was you only go to the court of public opinion when the actual court has failed you. And that is not the way that we should structure things. You know, we've got the sturgeon salmon cases playing out at the moment in Scotland. And that, to me, apart from anything else, represents a colossal failure for everyone involved. Obviously, Alex Salmon feels he hasn't had justice. The women involved, you know, who had their names leaked, do not feel that they've been treated well either. That is just an absolute demonstration of how poor we are still at any kind of justice or or you know reconciliation program to make it feel like everybody has had a fair shake of the tree we just haven't got that right yet now you dedicate the book as well as to difficult women to your husband and i don't really love always us sort of going back to what they say is you know what about men but um, there is a question isn't there of how can men best support feminism and in the book you you do have the example for, uh, of Andy Murray um and him always pointing out whenever sort of female tennis players are written out of history him sort of piping up with well actually Serena Williams has done this way before me how much do men have a part to play i mean they are half half the world and you know uh, you might feel that sometimes the onus is entirely too much on women, actually. Uh, the phrase that I use in the book is foot soldiers, not generals. And I think that's quite a tough thing. Grayson Perry has, has got a good book, which he talks about, you know, men sit down for your rights. You know, it's time to like give up the kind of anxiety about having to be the dominant guy, the patriarch, all of that stuff. And and I think that's I think that's exactly the way that I would look at it. The one thing I do think that men need to stop doing, she said, handing out. Um, uh, no, I mean this is hashtag not all men by any means. Is there have been some men who have used the fishes in feminism as an excuse to have a really good witch hunt and actually to get out some of their anger with women on the bad women. And I think you know something that. I, when I saw some of the tweets about someone like J.K. Rowling, I thought that was an exact demonstration of that. I'm not sure that all of them were entirely motivated by noble feminist principles, on both, you know, both male and female tweeters say. But there is sometimes a problem in which that feminism as chastisement of the bad women can end up becoming quite misogynist in itself. Well, do you think we've we've seen that? hugely really with the conversation around trans issues because that does seem to me to be where people use it basically as an opportunity to have a go at women when actually there are men saying those same things I mean I can think of male journalists who write this stuff and they do not receive the abuse for example you have received or Janice Turner has received Oh, I think it's absolutely extraordinary that sometimes, you know, that sort of exactly the same article can be received as a thoughtful, nuanced intervention in the debate by a man and as, you know, hate speech from a woman. <laughs> you think, well, I, you know, I don't know how we get over that, really, because that is just straightforward sexism. And and I do, and if we're going to talk about men's intervention and feminism, I think that, you know, the kind of feminism that involves shouting at women should perhaps particularly for men, take a backseat to the kind of feminism that involves, you know, emptying the dishwasher, doing 50% of the childcare, whatever, like, whatever it might be. Now, we're talking, obviously, from home, because, you know, hey, lockdown, pandemic. Does the pandemic open up any possibilities to create a fairer world going forward? Clearly, at the moment, what we've seen is actually regression, really, in women's rights, in that Women have picked up the bulk of, for example, childcare and, and all the care labour. What do you think? 
is there something positive that could come out of this period? I think the positive thing is the, is the anger, actually. And I, I think without a genuine sense of injustice, it's very hard to achieve change. You have to People have to really passionately care about something and be willing to devote a huge amount of energy to it. I've been writing a piece for The Atlantic following up. I wrote a piece a year ago that said the coronavirus is a disaster for feminism. And my tentative working title on this one is, yep, the coronavirus was indeed a disaster for feminism. Talking about the fact that, as you say, for straight couples with kids, there has been a return to the sort of breadwinner homemaker. We've seen far more job losses of, of women, far more women picking up the slack of homeschooling from school closures. But at the same time, you know, there's that great saying from Gloria Steinem, you know, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And I think that has really come across to me, particularly writing for an American magazine in America, where the social security you know, safety net is so threadbare, where it's such an individualistic culture that it's like you chose to have kids, you know, now, you know, you have to look after them. That I think that has really come across to me, the fact that the American women in particular are are really angry that they, they feel that political choices have been made. This didn't have to happen. Actually, women in other countries haven't faced the same kind of knackering year that they have and currently they're all too exhausted to do anything about it as I imagine you probably too exhausted to do any feminist campaigning at the moment but I do think it will shape politics for for years to come if there is that kind of groundswell of we were taken advantage of actually you know we talk a lot about kind of resentment and grievance in politics particularly racially white grievance in American politics but I think there is a kind of deep wellspring of female sense of grievance that might very well have some interesting political effects in the next couple of years. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you, Helen. Thank you very much for having me. I'd like to thank Helen for a great discussion there. The book is called Difficult Women, The History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And I'm Rosamond Derwin, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. <laughs>